You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky from Longform, and of course, Evan Ratliff from The Atavist. Hey, Aaron. How hey, you doing? I'm good. Good. Here in our studio, Dumbo, New York. Feels Frost, good to be back. Frosty here. day. Um, this week on the show, I talked to Wesley Yang. Do you guys know Wesley Yang? I've seen Wesley Yang's work. Yes. Uh, he wrote a very uh, a piece that caused a, a big splash a few years ago um, for New York Magazine called Paper Tigers, which I guess you would say is about the Asian American experience, for lack of uh, better terminology. Um, but he's written a bunch of uh, other interesting stuff for N Plus One. Um, he's an unusual guest for this show. I feel like we get a lot of um, precocious, super ambitious people who... Um, have had like sort of a dazzling rise in their career, and he is not that kind of a person. He's a person who struggled to figure it out through a lot of his life and poured a lot of himself into his writing um, before like really like building an audience or taking taking any sort of a careerist path. So I thought he was a really interesting person to talk to. Sounds like an interesting one, an intense one, perhaps. It's an intense episode. If uh, if you if you don't like intensity. Skip this episode. <laughs> Who uh, among us does not like intensity? I, li- I, I do like intensity. Um, if you want to send people some intense emails, how would you do so? If it were me, yeah, <laughs> like, I'd use MailChimp. Evan, Evan took a real pause there and thought about that one. For, I really was thinking, <laughs> what are the options for sending email to a lot of people? And I settled on MailChimp. They are our sponsor. Uh, MailChimp powers over 8 million businesses, and not just businesses, they, they power bands and bakeries. Bakeries is my go-to example. <laughs> uh, so anyway, MailChimp, they're always sponsoring us, and we always appreciate it. Thank you, MailChimp. Here's Aaron with Wesley Ed. Okay, uh, welcome, Wes Yang. Thanks uh, for coming in. Um, I think I came became aware of you as a writer from this 2011 piece that you wrote that I, I'm guessing has been kind of like, is like a, if you Google Wesley Yang, it's like this article and like 7,000 responses uh-huh. to this article. So right. I figure it's as good a place to start as any to talk about uh, your life in writing. Uh-huh. Um, the article is uh, called Paper Tigers. I'm sure you're sick of talking about it, but 
for people who haven't read it, what were you trying to take on in, in the piece? Well, so uh, if you'll recall back in February of 2011, the, the Wall Street Journal uh, ran an op-ed by a Yale law professor named Amy Chua. And uh, it was an excerpt from a book that she had, a memoir that was coming out called uh, sort of Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. And um, it had a title that was intended to be provocative. It said, why, why Chinese uh, mothers are superior. Yeah. It was a little bit unstable. The tone was you know, somewhat sort of satirical or yeah. self-parodic, but it was, also, it was also sort of earnest, and especially the way that it was framed with the headline. And she described uh, being sort of the way Chinese parents raise their children. Yeah. Her daughter was not allowed to, she had to play violin. She was not allowed to sort of uh, do a sleepover. Yeah. And sort of it made the statement, among others, that um, Chinese, some of the methods that we use could, could in fact be legally actionable. Is, and this was said in a tongue-in-cheek way, but it's also kind of true, right? right. Uh, so, sure. you know, depending on uh, what jurisdiction you happen to fall in. And, yeah. uh Certainly, like, socially unacceptable in, like, certain American circles. Right. And so she was making the link between that and between the success of, of Asian American students. Yeah. And so, you know, my editors at New York came to me and they were like, oh, you know, we, you're, you're an Asian person. Do you have anything <laughs> to, to say about this? Is that an experience you have had as a writer a lot is like, hey, you're Asian? Like, Well, prior to that, really, no, because it's not typically throughout so most of my adult life been an interest of you know, been a subject of real journalistic intrigue, right? right? But there, there is this aspect in which you know there there is concern among uh, upper middle class American parents who are obsessed with getting their children into the Ivy League that that uh, they may have become uh, too lenient with their kids, and yep. uh, you know it may not be an entirely unjustified concern, right? Yep. And so that story went huge; it became viral, and yep. I think that was a kind of early stage at which things started to get viral, where you could sort mm. of, you could troll whole racial groups and it would become an enormous, like everybody would share it and everybody would, would uh, comment on it. It was probably like in the top 10 first big outrages on the internet. Right. And so because it was the first, it had such an intense impact. And yes. so, you know, my initial, uh, my, my initial sort of uh, reaction to this request was, I was intrigued by it in some ways, but uh -huh. I was also somewhat resistant to it yeah. because one had an intuitive sense that you would be feeding this beast that was coming into emergence. And, and yeah. I, we didn't quite know the sort of the dimensions and the contour of what it would mean to right. feed that beast. I was like, well, what do you, you know, what, what do you want me to say about it? Right. Was sort yeah. of my attitude. And they're like, well, why don't you just start talking to people and sort of bit by bit, you know, the first thing I discovered was that, you know, that, that Stuyvesant High School, which is the sort of the math science uh, elite school in New York that um, you have to test into, yeah. uh, was 70% Asian, which yeah. is, you know, a, a dramatic increase from what it had been a decade ago. Uh, and it indicated to me that this was something that I could start trying to look into. And I just started looking for contacts. You know, I have, I have my own sort of complicated relationship to being an Asian person. And so... You know, the piece ended up being a very strange kind of stew of different elements where it opens up with memoir and then it goes on to it goes on to sort of uh, review some data and then to to present scenes from uh, different parts of the world that was more or less designed to provide a counterpart to the sort of tiger mother narrative. In many ways, it's um, 
like if the the tiger mother narrative is documenting uh, a form of Asian parenting, whether mm-hmm. it's real or imagined or whatever, um, your piece uh, imagines the life of children, mostly men who mm-hmm. grew up in the households that are described in, in the Tiger Mother right. book, right? I yeah. mean, was that something you knew going in, like, I'm going to do sort of Tiger children, or? I think so. Yeah. Asians in America are still 70% foreign-born, which is uh, a fact that I think that surprises a lot of people. It uh, shocked me. I, if you had asked me to gamble, I would have said 5%. New immigrants just kept coming and coming and coming. And so what I noticed at the time was sort of I grew up in a sort of mostly all-white suburb of northern New Jersey, uh, surrounded by uh, second-generation Asian kids who were pretty clear about, like, wanting to assimilate, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, they played soccer, they played football, and it seemed like the trajectory that we were moving toward was the, the eventual sort of disappearance of this as a distinctive ethnicity, yeah. right? But 40 years hence... What I saw was that these initial sort of immigrant patterns had been renewed because of more immigrants who had that sort of uh, who had that sort of fresh off the boat uh, energy. Now, you know, like third generation Asian American immigrants, you know, those kids are like in eighth grade now, and you know they, they're going to be different, and 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 we'll you know we'll see how that plays out. But you know, we're we're all. Most of us are either immigrants who arrived here or the children of immigrants. Yes. And immigration is, for the people who do it and for the, the children who endure it, it's a, it's a trauma, right? Yeah. And it's a trauma for a lot of different reasons. And one of the reasons it's a trauma is that there is this cultural divide that you have to, to, to bridge. And so, you know, for me, the issue that I kind of wanted to look at was the the sort of the invisibility and the absence of the Asian person. And it just, you know, at some level, it just has to do with how few of us there are. Like 6% of the country is is nominally Asian American, but, but Asian American is also a an umbrella term invented by ethnic entrepreneurs who wanted to sort of have our own distinctive category of identity politics. And so it encompasses... South Asians, it encompasses the Chinese, it, the, the people who are very quite culturally distinct from one another and who have, don't share a language, don't share a national history. And then, of course, until 1965, you know, sort of Asia, you know, there was, there was Chinese exclusion through, 19, through the 1920s. And so yeah. there isn't much of a history. You know, we, we, in your history books, you may learn about sort of uh, Chinese immigrants who, who came as prospectors for gold or who built the railroads. But for the most part, it was like an almost entirely male cohort of workers. And uh, they went back, or they just kind of dissolved into the general population. Or they had these Chinatowns where there's, you know, there's some continuity. But really, like the vast, vast majority of Asian Americans came after 1965, yeah. where you had lots of graduate students uh, and people in technical fields. And so there was, it, was a, it was a demographically distinct group of people that came. And of course, there's class divides within that as well, right? There, there are many, there's a large population in Flushing of illegal immigrants, you know, and, and a pipeline of people that will work in Chinese restaurants around the country and who, who, who live under, you know, conditions of, 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 of poverty and need. Patrick Radden Keefe, he did that piece uh, about um, the human smuggler in, in Chinatown, which I think another sort of shocking fact to me was that, like, if you look at people uh, who work in restaurants and say New York City Chinese restaurants, 
98% of them are from a single province of mm-hmm. China. They're, they are basically a single ethnic cohort. They have almost nothing to do, like, like almost nothing to do with even Chinese immigration. They're basically a single pipeline. There's like a village, right, that has been doing that, has been leading this postmodern existence since the 19th century. Yeah. What, what's fascinating about those kids is that they are, their parents are very poor and their parents don't have the ability to raise them, really, because they're working all the time. But, but they're here for a purpose, and that purpose is to use the educational system as a, as a route to upward mobility. To make a better life. Right. And so in spite of having parents who don't speak the English language and who don't, who don't have a high school education and who live under conditions of very dire poverty, they scrape together whatever they can to send these kids to these private academies that prep them in test taking. Yeah. And they get into stipend at a rate of 70%. To the point where, you know, there's now pushback on that. And sort of my article came out at a time before the pushback. I think my article indicated that something like 600 people got into, were offered admission to Stuyvesant. They scored high enough. Right. It was like 380 Asians and 100 whites and seven blacks. Yeah. And maybe like somewhat fewer than 20 Hispanics, right, in a public school system that is majority black and Hispanic. So this is the area where Asians become visible, right? Because they're, they're putting pressure on something that is interesting to the sort of upper white middle class yeah. reading public. And, uh, <laughs> you know, w- there's, there's right now there's a push to change the sort of protocol of admission into Stuyvesant to make it more holistic. And, sure. to, and, you know, there are many different schemes where you can get greater representation. And sort of the nominal thing that is at stake here is black and Hispanic representation, right? But that in, in a way, I see that as kind of a, like more white middle-class families want a shot also, right? And so they can... It's a way to backdoor in some white people. If yeah, just no, exactly. Like, like, spread it around I, here a little bit. I think they want to knock that 80, because now it's gone up to 80%. They want to knock right. down the 80% to 45, 50, you know, and they can, they can raise the black and Hispanic numbers through a, a holistic admissions process that is you know, necessarily gives them discretion to do whatever they like. Yes. Right? And, and, you know, and then bump up the whites also, yeah. right? Because that's, in, in the end, that's how, you, that's how you build support among politically active constituencies, you know? Yeah. And, and so I think that's what's happening. And I think, you know, uh, from one perspective, it makes perfect sense and it's okay. And, yep. and from another perspective, you know, there, there's these complicated politics around it. But these kids are demonstrating that you can have every possible disadvantage uh and and you can you can still through one's dogged hard work and persistence and and really no other assets right like make it into an elite education in america right like it's they're doing it at some cost to themselves at some cost to themselves and and that's part of what like i i wanted to document but you know the more i looked at it the more it the more I began to see that the cost sort of, it's like they, they're, they're losing out on things, on a, a well-roundedness or a, that they probably weren't going to have or, or get anyway, except, right. you know, there are always individual cases where, 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 where it, you know, it's possible. But so like, you know, the, per, the first person that I interview sort of gets really disillusioned at Stuyvesant with this, the grinding that he has to do and the, just the relentless competition yeah. of the place. And the, this, the seeming appearance that white students are somehow immune to that same <laughs> grinding competition and are sort of leading these 
bohemian uh freewheeling lives while in the same school as them right and and he asked himself well why why is this not possible for me and that's this moment of great like tension opportunity and also danger right yes for a person and because if there's a path that you know will lead to a $70,000 a year income as a management consultant or uh, an accountant or, or whatever it is the safe path that these kids are are, are being encouraged to do in yeah. order to vindicate all of the sacrifices and hard work that your parents did to put you in a position to do this. You know, the risk of attempting something different, you know, in most cases, it's just going to be too high for you, for you to stray from that path, right? And so the people who will stray from that path are those who can really just do no other, right? What was your own experience of, of trying to break into writing as a 22-year-old? Like? Well, you know, uh, when, when I think of my uh, experience generally, I was just, I was a pathologically sort of clueless, <laughs> oblivious person in every aspect of my life. Sort of, and, and I was just living in this kind of internal exile from which, this, you know, to be honest, you know, I, I, I don't know for a fact that I've that I that I've passed out of it. Did you realize that you were clueless when you were twenty two? No, I I, rec- I recognized it all along. I didn't know what I was doing. I I was a bad student at Rutgers, and um, I I didn't do well. And I <laughs> you know I had uh, I you know I just I'd never lived up my, to my potential in any way. So you know in, in a lot of ways the the tiger uh, child sort of narrative is not. It, it relates to me in, in in some ways in a very direct way, right? Right. But, but 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 obliquely because it's not one that I followed, right? Right. So uh, I I graduated in the bottom half of my class, and you know, and yes. I I failed calculus in my, in my senior year, and you know, I had really bad quantitative skills, and but the only thing that I I could do was that I could to some degree write. Right. Like my view of whether a person can write or not uh, is, I think if if you metabolize a certain threshold, this is my Gladwellian theory, right? If you metabolize, like you read a certain number of books before puberty, right? You'll have a basic sense of how language is supposed to feel. And there's actually, I don't think that there's a way to, if you read 10 times the number of books after puberty, I don't think you're going to get the same foundation for like the 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 basic intuitive sense of the way language is supposed to feel on a page in order to be good. Yes. And so I I got that and I also encountered in the 5th grade uh this 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 sort of uh this like unusual very old school you know hard ass lesbian teacher that sort of made us diagram sentences, right? Yeah. And so, like, if those two things hadn't happened, you know, I would have no skills at all, like, no ability to function in the world. I lacked all of those things, right? The ability to to function in an office. I lacked the ability to sort of be socially acceptable with an employer. But I could, I could write to some degree. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put these guys on hold for just a second, tell you a little bit about the sponsors who are helping us pay bills this week. Thank you, sponsors. First up is Trunk Club. And if you are in New York, like I am in New York, you're starting to feel a little hint of spring there. Starting to get a little warmer. You're leaving that winter coat at home, starting to feel good. Those winter doldrums are fading, but your clothes, they have also faded from style. 
It's time for some new ones, and Trunk Club is the way to go. They take the hassle out of shopping by finding the best clothes for you and your style. You're going to look and feel amazing, and you'll always have the perfect clothes for spring. If you go to trunkclub.com slash longform, all you have to do is answer a couple simple questions about your style, your preferences, your size, and then you're going to get a personal expert stylist, someone to choose clothes just for you. They're going to handpick clothes from the best premium brands, and then they're going to send you a trunk with all the stuff they think you'll like. All you have to do is approve what you do like and send back what you don't. It's totally free shipping both ways. If you go to trunkclub.com slash longform, someone's going to style you for free, and you're only going to pay for the clothes that you keep. Go ahead. Go to trunkclub.com slash longform. That's trunkclub.com slash longform, and get a trunk filled with the clothes you'll love wearing. Thanks, Trunk Club. So if you want to look good, you need some new clothes. If you want to feel good, you need some new food, and maybe... That food should come delivered straight to your door, like our friends at Home Chef do. With Home Chef, you get all the fresh ingredients you need, plus instructions to cook restaurant-quality meals in under 30 minutes. And it all just comes straight to your door once a week. They're chef-designed, restaurant-quality recipes. You can get a rustic vegetarian tart with spinach, roasted red peppers, and goat cheese. How about a little uh, maple miso glazed salmon with Brussels sprouts and apple? Or even a Parisian bistro steak with creamy potatoes and green beans. These are fantastic meals that you can make in your own house. And you can make them in under 30 minutes. This is something you can actually pull off during the week, which is something we all need, or at least I need. I've been eating gross crap all winter. Uh, I am fat. I feel poorly. And uh, it's time to change that. I'm going to do it with Home Chef. So here's what you should do if you want to be like me and change that diet of yours. Go to homechef.com slash longform. Use the code longform at checkout. You're going to get 20 bucks off. Each meal is under $10. So that's two free meals, basically. Homechef.com slash longform. Rediscover home cooking. Okay, let's get back to Wesley and Aaron. So in some ways, your experience, I mean, what you were doing as a child that mm. lined you up to be who you are now is not actually entirely different than some of these sort of tiger upbringings. You were just uh, interested <laughs> in reading, not playing a violin. Uh, I, well, or, I, I was interested in what I was interested in, right? Right. which is not really what I, you know, I sh- should have been interested and in. And that was self-directed right. on your point. No one was saying like, oh, go read a bunch of these great novels or yeah. anything like that uh, you know I in the eighth grade I started to, you know like my brother had uh, you know he brought home from college um, like a Nietzsche reader right and so this is very exciting to me and I read that right yeah and what, so what, what was reading Nietzsche as an eighth grader like I feel like it's almost dangerous to expose an eighth grader to well Nietzsche. I you know I, I think it is dangerous and I think whatever <laughs> whatever bad thing is supposed to happen definitely happened right yeah um, so very early on, even as just like a like a like a ninth grader, I, I I had already developed some notion of myself as an intellectual, right? But it was totally unmoored, right, and like disconnected to to anything real. There was also like, uh, you know, at the school that I went to, uh, there, there's this uh, Asian American sociologist who 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 talks about stereotype promise, right? Which is that like Asians benefit from stereotype promise. Uh, you know, there's there's this idea of stereotype threat, which is that like when when like women or blacks or other people who are expected to perform less well, like women on oh, math like tests, the opposite, or, right? So the opposite is is that like people will think that you're smart, and therefore you will pre- be perceived as smart, and you will be treated in ways that ra- that create a certain expectation to which you you will probably rise. And yes, and I definitely benefited from stereotype promise, right? Yeah, <laughs> and I, I was regarded as 
as intelligent. But in addition to this, I had uh, I had you know a somewhat precocious and nation notion of myself as as what we would think of as an intellectual, right? Even though I didn't really know what that meant. But I you know I I sort of wanted to separate myself from my peers and yeah. my, my tastes and my interests. And, yeah. And, and I think like people who develop that sense of themselves early uh, are you know tend to be the ones that then go on to do this thing, which has become an adult misanthrope in a way. Yeah, and I describe you as a misanthrope uh, based on your self description in these writings. Sure. Um, at least in your early twenties, you describe yourself as someone who basically was obsessed with being different than other people and sort of being off a, a, a track. Right. And but but and and actually just was right like yeah. <laughs> actually just like lacked the, you know lacked the ability to conform. Yeah. You know there are all sorts of ways to lack the ability to conform, right? And there are people you know they have enormous sort of personal charisma, or they you know they 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 find they find ways to make a, make a business out of whatever is idiosyncratic or, or distinctive about themselves. And you know I didn't I didn't have any of those things, right? Uh, so. I was just kind of a, I was a lost 20-year-old. You know, I worked at a regular newspaper. Uh, what paper? A Gannett paper in New Jersey. You know, like, I sort of, I drifted out of college. I didn't have a degree. It had been yeah. four years, so I needed a job. I went to work for, like, one of those free weekly papers they throw onto, you know. And I didn't know anything about journalism. I guess I'm just sitting here. Uh, no, I mean, I mean, confessing is... to have always been a lost person and still be. So. <laughs> no, That's... I mean, but but I think you've channeled it into something in that when you describe that sort of inability to conform and to to sort of understand what's wanted, you, you the subjects of your writing often you mm. you profile people who this is a quality <laughs> of them as well. So you've written profiles of uh, Eddie Huang, yeah, who. Um, is, runs a restaurant in New York and has TV shows and is like celebrity chef is almost I think a sort of insulting term but he's a celebrity chef right and then you've also written about the Virginia shooter Song Wei Cho both Asian men within ten years of your age I would guess yeah who were unable to fit in with the program and took totally divergent paths around it y- yes do you see yourself as like a, a foil for those people. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking back the other day about like what things I have been interested in. What was I interested in in my 20s? I was interested in Welbeck. I was interested in the elementary particles. I was interested in Fight Club. Yeah. I was interested in pickup artistry. This is before all of these things had sort of metastasized into what they've yeah. turned into. And yet, you can see the germ of a certain set of interests. I, I'm interested in some ways, you know, I'm interested in masculinity. I'm not this kind of testosterone-driven uh, uh, man, but I am interested in the fact that, like, men commit murders at a rate eight times that of women. And so I'm interested in, you know, the, the, the fact that most of the violence and the problems in the world come from some power-seeking elements that that exists in men and that when it's frustrated will often you know can uh, the response can be uh can can be very creative right or yeah. or it can be very destructive and there's this term that i found in uh you know i, I got it by fukuyama who who takes it from plato this uh, thumos thumos I, I don't even know how to say it but the spiritedness of the guardians right yeah. it's the the part 
the part of a person that Plato theorized, uh, you know, we have, we have logos, we have our reason, and then and we have pathos, which is feeling, but we also have this third element, which is the, the, the thing in a person that, that rises up, you know, in response to what it perceives as an injustice and, and takes the form of a demand for recognition. And that demand for recognition is, is something that I think every mythanthrope knows, right? Because, because one, one goes through life unable to partake of habitual paths to recognition, right? And, and either through some means finds a, a way to gratify that desire or in, in the absence of that means spirals into misanthropy, you yeah. know, violence, hate, and so on. And so that trajectory is, is, is one that, you know, sort of in, in my own sort of fantasy slash emotional life, I, you know, I, I, I've, I've lived. Yeah. So it's easy for me to write about it, you know, yeah. and the different forms that it takes with different people. A common moment that you cite in, in the life of the misanthrope uh-huh. is the moment where they make a crucial decision sort of which path to go. You describe uh, the Virginia Tudor show, the moment he hired an escort uh, to mm. dance for him in this hotel room, mm. and he tries to touch her, and she sort of recoils. Uh-huh. Like, what what, uh-huh. what could have been different there? Uh-huh. Or in the case of your profile of Aaron Schwartz, mm. a very, very different kind of misanthrope, knowing that basically like a week later, had he not committed suicide, there was going to be this change in his legal case that could have radically shifted his perspective on it. Like, um, in many ways, when I take this sort of uh, police lineup of misanthropes that you've Uh profiled, Uh they're they're all kind of like one, like divergent paths of a single person Uh in a way a feeling you get when you put them all together. Uh When you when you bring that up in your own life, was there a moment like that for you that 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 your life forked? Well, I don't know that there is a specific moment, but, you know, I, I had been a journalist and then I didn't have any notion of, you know, what it meant to be in New York or, uh, and I didn't have any access to it. I, I was living in New Jersey working at a suburban <laughs> newspaper. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that was sort of the peak of my misanthropy, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, it's just sort of driving around in these in this like featureless exurban landscape, and um, you know couldn't even like muster any energy to have uh, a dream about something else. Right. But you know I did wanna I did wanna write, and I had a friend who started to write for uh, Feed magazine, and then through that I, I just like met one person. Right, and and I you know I persuaded one person to let me review a book for Salon, and and then that's that's kind of all I was doing. I was just like trying to get people one by one to let me write something here or there. But really, what happened was um, sort of you know very early on, uh, uh, I met this guy called Keith Gesson. You know, I met you know I remember you know very vividly. This was like two thousand two, or yeah. this is this is pretty early on, and he was like, oh, we're going to start this magazine. And, you know, it's going to be called N plus one. And, you know, I was kind of a vague hanger on of the N plus one scene for a few years. Yeah. And then the Cho thing happened. And yeah. they were like, oh, this, you know, we know an Asian guy. You know, maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe we get him to write something about yeah. it. And I just started to write this thing. And yep. it didn't, it just involved surfing around the Internet, like, 
finding crazy stuff. And it was a good story in so many ways because he was a creative writing student and he left behind a manifesto, which was then aired on television. And yeah. uh, so it was the you know it was the inauguration of something that we're that we've now become very familiar with and that we have a, a clear taxonomy the sort of the, the postmodern shooting which yeah which is like the the sort of the angry individual male right. who is who is a virgin or right. highly uh, sexually frustrated who experiences catharsis through you know by means of uh, an AK47 right. and so there was just all of these like gory, grody, you know, kind of sub pornographic details that that emerged, and you could just like put them into a piece, right? I didn't and, know a lot of that stuff. This is always uh, the trip to me. Like I, I actually thought I was fairly knowledgeable about that shooting. I remember I think Jay Caspian Kang also wrote a piece in mm -hmm. which he also lightly I identified with the. <laughs> I was I was like I was like I was like this is a weird echo. I don't think I've read this N plus one thing, but someone else I know has also like written something where they were like, yeah, I can see myself in that person, um, but. <laughs> The details I didn't know were like that he was a student of Nikki Giovanni's yeah, yeah. And, and had actually disrupted her class. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of these coincidences are just like if this was fiction, I would be like, come on. Yeah. Like, seriously? Yeah. Tell people who are listening sort of the role of that Nikki Giovanni section in this, this N plus one so, piece on so, Cho. You know, Nikki Giovanni is a creative writing professor at Virginia Tech, and Cho was enrolled in the class and he would uh, he would uh, intimidate and, and frighten people just by his demeanor yeah uh, and his in, writings in the class and also by in, in his writings that you know involved some fantasies of violence and so forth although a short story that he wrote it doesn't end with an actual killing right but he find he finds a female collaborator to right and they go on him. they sort of are about to go on a murdering they, spree. they've armed themselves and and it ends but but we don't actually see the spree we don't know yeah. what happens um but you know uh he would show up in sunglasses and he would he would you know he would just act in a way that everybody thought he was crazy and they were they were right to think so yeah but she herself had you know she had herself had been in in the 60s a black nationalist uh poet and she had written this poem, you know, I can't, I can't say, uh, you know, but it used the N word a lot. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it is, uh, she's speaking to uh, an unnamed N word interlocutor and yes. uh, asking him whether or not uh, he's just going to kill his own or whether he's going to start killing white people. Yeah. It, it goes on and on in this incantatory way saying, you know, can you kill, can you kill a whitey? Can yep. you, can you, can you rape a blonde head? Can you, you know, piss on a blonde head? It's, Pretty much confrontational in a way that that echoes some of the ways that Joe's writing could have been perceived. Well, that's what she had written, and yeah. and that was okay, <laughs> right? Because it fit within a certain established rubric of of ethnic grievance that that you know certainly by now by that time we had we had all learned to sort of digest, absorb, right. and contextualize historically. Whereas what Cho was doing was not okay, <laughs> right? And it was not okay because it was it was a violent psychopath. Yes. But also because even if it wasn't somebody who was mentally ill, it it was untethered from anything that anybody wanted to recognize as a form of grievance. And yes. it, it's been followed up by other things that have I think help us fill in the gaps and recognize that there's a taxonomy there. Right. Yes. Of of just uh, men whose demand for recognition and whose intrinsic power-seeking 
element has not been satisfied and who will resort to to violence in order to satisfy it. You very like clearly in in the piece liken your experiences to those of the show and and, and empathize with them. I would say, and I guess I'm I, I'm curious as to whether that worried you, you know, uh, to to do that. The right. people's reaction to 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 someone who is clearly empathizing with with a, the biggest uh-huh. mass killer in American history, right, right, and. I, I was in some ways shocked while I was reading it, uh-huh. just how dark you were willing to be about yourself. Like I, I could, I'm not sure I could. Not, it's not that I don't have those impulses, uh-huh. but I've never said like, yeah, I empathize with a mass uh-huh. shooter. Like uh-huh. I feel some of that inside myself. Well, you know, it's like there's a series of concentric circles, right? And yep. and one of the circles is like people who have felt alienation, right? And there's like millions of people who fit into that circle. Yeah. Right. And then like you you like you continue to narrow that circle, right? Yeah. And we've we filled in a lot of gaps in, in sort of like recent American political history about and then like people who understand what it's what would lead people to emphasize with Donald Trump. Right. Yes. And then like people who blah, 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 blah. And then you get tighter and tighter. And then right. eventually you arrive at, you know, like people who have lost their minds, uh, right. people who are who are capable of, you know, of psychotic rage. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I would put myself uh, in a circle where. I have experienced like a profound alienation yeah. from the world, and and that's the level at which, you know, yes. I can register and feel empathy for Cho. And I think actually that circle is actually pretty big, right? Probably the size of that circle is commensurate with um, how much attention people like uh-huh. Cho and Rogers do get. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I don't think that story would be as interesting to America if there weren't a lot of people who kind of felt something emotionally about themselves, not just from the perspective of the victims, but also from the perspective of the killer. There was a kind of like artlessness to the Cho piece in the sense that like, I would say 80% of it was written in a single draft, right? Jesus. This is a Kindle single. It's like a 10,000 word piece. But, you know, like most of it was just written very spontaneously and we 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 just worked on it and worked on it and multiple editors went through all of these attempts to make it different or better but there was just a kind of it there was a kind of holistic thingness to it yeah where you know ev- even its sort of flaws and convolutions all had to just remain as they were yeah and so at the end we were like oh we're just going to print this like the way you initially emailed it to us oh really and yeah it was just kind of an email in a way even that's like, a very artful e- i mean uh, i'm very impressed if you're uh, able to write at that level uh in an email it, well it, in the sense like i'm only able to write at that level in yeah. email is a thing right and i'm not always able to do it but yes your question as like is it risky it's it's both risky like psychologically internally to like go to those places yeah and then there's also like once you have done it and you've produced something that you feel resonates and has power to it but you're also like really afraid right about like what people are going to think about it like what like your peers are going to think about it in relation to you and and just well like what a broader general public will conclude about you and you know some people were like well don't publish this and that's part of paper tigers also i mean Mm -hmm. paper tigers is in many ways a catalog of the emasculated asian male which wes yang is putting himself (laughs) uh you know in in, in that concentric circle very firmly Uh, yeah you know um well m plus one piece you know you were you asked earlier about a turning point and that was definitely a turning point oh interesting right you know for um 
I had received very little recognition as a writer, and I wasn't really deserving of any recognition as a writer prior to that piece. But then it came out, yeah. And for about a month afterwards, you know, I got I got emails, several emails every day. Oh, really? From people who were they were saying things that like writers don't say to other writers, which is like you know I, you know, they didn't say I wept, right? Yeah. But they're like you know I, I'm ashamed of myself as a writer. Like somebody said that, right? Yeah. And. You know, nothing can make a writer feel better than having another writer tell them they feel ashamed of themselves as yeah. a writer, right? Uh, <laughs> Did that serve as a validation for you? Did well, that... you know, it served as a point that, like, this, you know, I, I can be a writer, which is yeah. not, you know, even though I was in my early 30s, um, it was totally unclear whether whether, you know, I actually had anything to add, and it turns out that I did. Of course, I feel like profound ambivalence about this being the thing that I have to add, right? Like the accounts yeah. of of emasculated, embittered Asian men, right? But it showed that, like, if a person remains true to some part of their experience, no matter what it is, and they present it in full candor, that there's, that there's just, there's value to that, and people will recognize it. And so, like, once I knew that that was true, I knew that I could do this. There's a moment in that uh, Cho piece. I'm sorry I keep bringing those Cho pieces. Uh-huh. Now that's 10 years old, you must be like, wow, that guy's really into my old shit. Uh-huh. But uh, where you are you basically like trick the reader into thinking something racist. Uh-huh. You're like, imagine uh-huh. the person like serving you Mexican food. Uh-huh. Like, okay, here are a bunch of logical thoughts that you uh-huh. have there. I'm like, okay, yeah, 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 uh-huh. yeah. And then you're like, you're racist. And I'm like, oh, you got me. <laughs> I mean, there is a certain gotcha where I feel like y- you use this tactic of like leading people on a series of like logical leaps mm. that end somewhere horrific uh, at the end uh, when you make someone uncomfortable like that mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. like what's your intention what are you trying to do to the reader in, in that situation the contemporary novelist that I was interested in you know was Welbeck right yeah and you know like not just be- because of the themes yeah you know and the, where it, it has culminated right in his kind of you know his sort of embrace of Islam right and yeah he has said that he's an Islamophobe but he's but he, you know, he's an Islamophobe. He doesn't know anything about it. But he's yeah. he's also very attracted to it, right? right? Like there's something very sincere about his embrace of it, yes, right? Because he's the basic sort of trajectory, right, of the novel is yeah. like the discovery of individual moral autonomy, yeah, right. And then it sort of it, it ends in Welbeck, right? When like individual moral autonomy, when it becomes universalized, like produces these like totally atomized and lost individuals who want to relinquish their moral autonomy to anything up to and including Allah, right? Right. Uh, And that part of the drama that he's writing, you know, and it may be not that different than what Dostoevsky was writing about, right? Is is the part that has great compelling power, rhetorical and otherwise, and conceptual power. And it's what's interesting to me. And so... I, I always say to myself, you know, I, sh- I should switch to, to fiction, right? Because, because that's, that's where this stuff gets dramatized. But I just didn't, I didn't have the, uh, I didn't have the courage to do that. Did you, did you, uh, did you dabble in fiction? No, I've never had the courage to do anything. I, I've never had the self certitude to do any of that, right? I, I need some kind of factual predicate to give to get me to do stuff, right? And yeah. so. You know, I basically I'm just scanning the world for for things that that fit that factual predicate and then and try to shoehorn it into some nonfiction. But, you know, like, what am I trying to do? I'm just trying to affect people. Some people just have this 
basically gadflyish temperament, you know, which is not to say that I don't have like a good political instincts that that you know people in Brooklyn would admire right. and you're not you like know, a, you're not a Donald Trump supporter. No, really. right. But to be a journalist that focuses on that is it, it just doesn't just it's like they're journalists who who want to affect some change in the world and then and then and then there are those who just like want to arouse himself and others and yeah. I'm I'm still trying to learn what it would mean, right, to have that mission-driven sense, right? But but in the interim, I, I, I just, in a sense, want to develop my powers to be able to affect people rhetorically. Ta-Nehisi uh, Coates was on this show, and he said something that connected to what you just said. Um, I, I think that's definitely what he's doing, by the way. Oh, so, well, but yeah. it was interesting. He said, you know, you come out with this book, mm-hmm. and now my email box, mm-hmm. I can't remember if he said this on the show or in the bar downstairs, so... Tanahasi, right. sorry if uh, I uh, uh-huh. blowing off your spot, but you know my email box is full of activists, people who want me to right. appear at a, a, ra- a Black Lives Matter rally or to contribute writing to an anthology about uh, social activism, and he, he's like, I'm not by nature an activist, I'm by nature a right. writer. I'm willing to talk, like we could have a dialogue. You you know, I'm not saying no, right. but. I'm a thinker, and and uh, and as a thinker, I, I'm trying to provoke people and and, and um, change how they think about things. And as an activist, you may not like the conclusion I come to. My conclusion may be things aren't going to change; right. they'll never change. And that's an acceptable conclusion to come to as a writer. Mm-hmm. It's not an acceptable conclusion to come to as a social activist. Right. And therefore, a social activist and a writer are different camps fundamentally yes and so like to me in some ways i I resent asian identity politics being foisted on me as a theme on the other hand it's the very sort of invisibility marginality the fact that like people really profoundly don't care about it yeah there's a way you could make a virtue out of all of those things, and 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 through Cho and through the Paper Tigers people, oh, I saw that there was a way to make a virtue out of those very qualities of it, and in a way, it makes it the most universal account of this sort of misanthropy of all. Yeah, precisely because it's the thing that nobody wants to think about, nobody wants to admit, nobody wants to be harangued about. The attempt to try to like bring it into the level of social activism. You know, just is is just like grossly self parodic, right? Yeah, I mean, like, it would just be like uh, more mental health care, <laughs> or you know, like just, it, just like no, like it doesn't exist on anyone's radar, right? Yeah, and like every now and then there'll be some sop to it. Every now and then something will happen that will cause people to think about it, right? Like a guy will shoot a bunch of baskets, right, for the Knicks. Yeah, and then and then like all, all of these people will like leap at the moment to have their say and you know there'll be these blog posts yes but all that does is just underscore the underlying fact that like it doesn't matter to anyone yeah and yet like that in itself can be sort of like the existential human condition in itself right yeah i mean would you broaden it like you know notably absent in the piece are uh asian women are not 
heavily represented in the piece or, you know, like, do you feel like uh, a need to sort of cover all your bases or to even focus more in, into your own concentric circle? I, I think it's better to focus on the concentric circle. Initially, I went out sort of, you know, I talked to a bunch of people about this stuff and there's all this, there's all this formulaic stuff and it's like of no interest to me, right? Like, <laughs> Oh, where are you from? Oh, that's so insulting that somebody would ask that of me. Right? Are you are you implying that I'm a perpetual f- like that? That means nothing to me, right? And and you know I have much deeper sort of discontents. And it's interesting uh, how that that concentric circle and that idea of making people feel. I'm not in that concentric circle. I'm not Asian for uh-huh. listeners who have not looked at a picture of me. Uh-huh. Um, but while I was reading your writing. I was feeling a lot uh, to begin uh, with, uh, but I was also like, you know, it keeps sort of like uh, referencing like I'm not a like like a, a six foot tall white man. Like uh, only fifteen percent of men are over six foot tall. I was like, oh, I'm a, I'm an over six foot tall uh, white man. I was like, I have always felt <laughs> like you know the under not like an underdog, but I you know I felt many of the misanthropic things that you have felt. But then I was like, oh, I'm also. The white man. I'm also the like tall white man in this story. So there is a weird level of that hyper specificity sort of puts everyone on a certain kind of a blast about who who they are and, and their relation to that concentric yeah, circle. Yeah, but I don't think I failed to put myself on blast for, uh, for de- everything else. <laughs> definitely so, not. <laughs> I mean, I, I have a piece. Um, I have a short thing coming out. Uh, Harper's is doing a roundtable on sort of student protests. Mm. And uh, I was tapped to do it because um, I had been, I've been quite vociferous, you know, in, in my, uh, uh, on social media activity, sort of like attacking uh, the, the sort of attacks on free speech, okay. right, that are, that, that are coming out of all of this new race and gender jargon, right, that's yes. coming out of the universities. But I ended up taking like a pretty different tack because... Uh-huh. Um, it turned into something different, and I, st- I still think I have a piece. It's like I could do this thing just like taking a kind of libertarian stance and blasting people, right? Yeah. Uh, but that's not where it ended up at all, and and uh, I, I ended kind of putting my myself on blast in this way. That, that seems to be a common theme. <laughs> <laughs> would, are you ever are you ever going to write a piece that's kind to yourself? Uh, well, but you know. Uh, Nietzsche always said that you know when you blast yourself, right? Yeah. There's, there's the there's the there's the part of yourself that you're blasting, but then there's also the the assertion of the self that is doing the blasting. Right. I, right? I, I have the I have the power to blast myself. But, but yeah, and but there's also so there's like there's also like tremendous pride in it, right? And right. then there's also like there there's daring in being able to do it in public, and then there's daring in being able to take on all this risk. But also like to be able to pull it off, right? And it's hard to do. Um, and I'm pretty convinced that that I've done it. How did you know? I'm just curious. You said that some people told you not to publish that Cho piece, and I'm guessing there was even people probably who were against publishing Paper Tigers, knowing that it would be like controversial. When someone says, "Don't put this out," what is that? Just sort of a internal confidence to know, like yeah, I'm going to do it. It's worth it to me. Well, it's... you know, I definitely oscillate between a kind of being the meek Asian man to the to the you know, and this is something that I think 
Jay talks about. I think it's a, like a very Korean trait to sort yeah. of forbear and forbear and then like explode in rage, right? Yeah, he described uh, in the in Jay's uh-huh. piece. There's there's a Korean word for it that doesn't exist in English. Just right. sort of like silent rage. No, the word is the word is han, and yeah. you know it refers to the sort of uh, my understanding of it, which is not very good, but like the the accumulated injustice, the yeah. rage that accumulates over time and then expends itself in yeah. a sudden, abrupt, and and totally uncalled for, yes. right, explosion. So for me, you know, like, you know, I will, I will go through life just kind of deferring and bowing, and then, and then I become very bloody-minded all of a sudden. And so, like, that kind of happens when I have these pieces where I'm like, oh my God, you know, like I can't, I can't put this out there, and uh, I will, okay. and then I'll read it and like, this is fucking awesome, you know, like yeah. put it out there, right? And yeah. Then, and then we put it out, and then, and it worked out. So writing is sort of your explosion. I, you know, I, I oscillate between the the two modes, and you know, yeah. I'm twenty percent of the time. I'm in a mode of like great self-confidence, and and it's in those moments that like the things get done, and yeah. and then for me, so now it's about sort of acquiring certain ancillary skills to be able to, and then like the mindset and the ability to just like absorb large bodies of of information and be an expositor that is friendly to the reader, right? Uh, yeah. For 80% of a piece, in order for it to appear in a magazine for whom that's necessary, and then marry it to this other more volatile element that I that I feel is like the thing that I have to offer. So it's like can you can you take that volatile element and can you can you supplement it and can you temper it and can you modulate it for different voices and venues? And I don't I actually don't know. I may just have to like eventually go rogue and 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 write write a kind of like a messy stew of a novel, right? Not like a perfect well-made one, but a Welbeckian, essayistic, Tristan Shandy-esque assemblage that would be that would that would qualify as a novel. Man without quality-esque kind of, you know, s- sprawling thing. Uh, it, more and more, I think that 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 that, that is what uh, I want to write. But I'm I, I'm doing more talking about it than actually doing it. I mean, I'd read it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Wes Yang. Thank you. And that was the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky sitting in on the credits for Aaron Lammer, who did that interview with Wesley Yang. Thanks to both of them. It was a uh, conversation I will not soon forget. Thanks also to Evan Ratliff. He's our co-host. Jenna Weiss-Berman's our editor. Our intern this week, Courtney Harrell. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, Trunk Club, and Home Chef. If you want to make restaurant-quality meals at home without the hassle, try Home Chef. They'll deliver fresh ingredients to your house. It takes under 30 minutes to make the meal, and it costs less than $10. If you go to homechef.com slash longform and use the code longform at checkout, you'll get 20 bucks off. We'll see you next week. I'm a fool to do your dirty work. Oh, yeah. I don't want to do your dirty work no more. I'm a fool to do why do you run why does anyone i always thought that runners loved running and that's not the case most runners hate running (laughs) 
<laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Socks brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. <laughs> 